This week, I'll be looking at the many legacies of Ivanhoe and the ways in which it's been reimagined in the two centuries since its publication. Hello, this is Lucy. Welcome to Footnoting History. This and all of our Footnoting History episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. As I discussed briefly last time, Ivanhoe was almost instantaneously and enormously popular with broad swaths of Britain's reading public when it was first published in 1819. The first stage adaptation appeared within a month of the novel's publication. So intense was reader investment that, in a preface to the second edition, Sir Walter engaged with what contemporary fandom might call shipping wars, explaining why he chose to marry Ivanhoe off to Rowena rather than to the universally beloved and extremely awesome Rebecca. Another, more ominous authorial note had to defend a different choice of his. To portray the reality that, yes, black and brown people had existed during the Middle Ages and had even existed in Europe. Now, the creation of Jewishness as an ethnic other in both medieval and modern Europe is a topic deserving of attention in its own right. And as we shall see, it was controversial in mid-century Hollywood. But the non-white characters objected to by some of Ivanhoe's very angry early readers were not as significant to the narrative or as complex, as Rebecca and her father Isaac of York. They were the servants of Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert, the Templar knight who is Ivanhoe's main antagonist. To be clear, this is anything but an accurate representation of medieval Europe, which recent scholarship has demonstrated to have been much more racially diverse than often imagined. Reading Ivanhoe today, one might wince at the way in which their narrative function is to provide exotic background for the Templar himself. But some readers in the 19th century wanted to imagine a medieval Europe that, for all of the conflict between Normans and Saxons present in the novel, was definitely all white. And this became a significant and sinister facet of Ivanhoe's legacy. The noted medievalist and author of medievalist fiction, Umberto Eco, once quipped about the American love of the Middle Ages and zeal for reinventing it that any country able to produce Scientology can do a lot in terms of wash and wear sorcery and holy grail frappe. As Echo also points out, fantastic and fanatical versions of the medieval past coexist alongside more responsible forms of engagement, always. So what did it mean to revisit Sir Walter Scott's Middle Ages in the long 19th century? In examining Ivanhoe's reception in the decades following its publication, we encounter the 19th century's fraught relationship with both historical memory and with the idea of modernity. To be alive and literate in the 19th century, one scholar has argued, was to be influenced in some way by the novels of Sir Walter Scott. And this does not mean only literate in English. There are over 3,000 versions of Scott's works in other languages, including over 600 direct translations in 36 languages. But in this episode, we'll be focusing on the Anglophone world. For the middle 50 years of the 19th century especially, it's hard to overemphasize how popular Ivanhoe was, inspiring spoofs, artwork, tournaments, circus acts, numerous plays, and multiple operas, including one by none other than Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, 
And no, it's not as good as his operettas. Entering the 20th century, Scott, and Ivanhoe in particular, came to be increasingly identified with a romantic, distant, and definitely unmodern past, incompatible with an increasingly industrialized and self-consciously modern society. But this was never a straightforward progression, as we shall see. The 1950s film version of Ivanhoe has been described as the outstanding model of the genre of the medieval epic, the first film of its kind to attempt what Hollywood considered an accurate representation of the Middle Ages. Now, what Hollywood considered an accurate version of the medieval past was rather far off that. Its treatments of Jewish observance, medieval literacy, and women's undergarments, for instance, are all hilariously incorrect. But it was a glorious technicolor, no-expense-spared blockbuster, studded with both stars from Hollywood's golden age and a luminously beautiful Elizabeth Taylor, aged 21, as Rebecca. So over-the-top was this Ivanhoe, and so perfectly matched to popular expectations of the Middle Ages, that it could in turn be spoofed a few years later in Danny Kaye's The Court Jester, which, parenthetically, is one of the all-time great examples of comic medievalism. So Ivanhoe hardly died away out of popular consciousness. In addition to serving as a literary referent, it got another film adaptation in 1982 and the BBC miniseries treatment in 1997. At least equally interesting is a film version that didn't get made. In the late 1940s, when Paramount was first working on the project that would eventually become the 1952 blockbuster, the plan was for Ivanhoe to marry Rebecca, vindication for the novel's first generations of fans. Not only that, but the plan was for Ivanhoe to marry Rebecca in a Jewish ceremony, a pointed statement about reconciliation in the aftermath of World War II. However, and perhaps all too predictably, the studio feared that this anti-racism would be perceived as anti-American, and the film retains Ivanhoe's marriage to Rowena, with significantly less ambiguity and nuance than allowed for by the text of the novel. When they first crossed the Atlantic, Scott's novels were so popular in the U.S. that they led to the development of new book distribution networks. But this was not simply a matter of innocent interest in rollicking historical fun. As Matthew X. Vernon has demonstrated, American white supremacy in the 19th century was frequently linked to constructions of the medieval past. And Ivanhoe was, of course, an iconic example of this romantic medievalism. Mark Twain, writing in the 1880s, mocked Ivanhoe for its, quote, sham grandeurs and sham chivalries of a brainless and worthless long-vanished society, unquote. Ouch. More seriously, Twain accused Sir Walter Scott of starting the Civil War. Wait, what? Yes. The self-perception of white elites in the antebellum American South was unapologetically one of a chivalric gallantry that claimed continuities with the medieval European past, rather than, say, the enslavement of black people and displacement of indigenous tribes in the U.S. And so, for Mark Twain, this delusional, Walter Scott-addled sense of identity and history led inexorably to secession and to war. In an article revisiting Twain's claim about Ivanhoe's indirect legacy, Walter Scott is unkindly described as the romantic of trivial sentimentality and muddled thinking. 
There is not inconsiderable irony in this, of course, since one of the points that Walter Scott is making in Ivanhoe, and overtly at that, is that oppression along racial lines is doomed to create a dysfunctional society. It's also worth noting that while Twain scoffed at what he saw as Ivanhoe's medieval chivalry silliness, Scott himself portrays chivalry as a hollow ideology in a central scene of the novel. But none of this prevented its appropriation. Anne Rigney, in analyzing Ivanhoe's popularity in the two centuries since its publication, has argued that Ivanhoe is constantly being recalibrated according to new frames of reference, new agendas, and new horizons of expectations, both, quote, appropriated in the theater of identity politics and used as a common currency in negotiating differences, unquote. While historians of the American Civil War and scholars of Sir Walter Scott agree that actually he wasn't responsible, it's worth noting that white elites of the American South did enthusiastically adapt and adopt the famous tournament scene of Ivanhoe, with tournaments being held across the South in the years before the war. After the war, even more significantly, Ivanhoe-esque tournaments were held as fundraisers for monuments to the Confederate cause. As Anne Helen Peterson has noted, there was also a queen of love and beauty at the infamous Veiled Prophet's Ball of St. Louis. However untethered from the original context of Ivanhoe these events may be, they were still seen as public spectacles for which Ivanhoe could provide a suitable model. Ivanhoe was, in fact, so enthusiastically adopted as symbolically aligned with white American identity that this identification could be used in a novel written by a notable black American author at the turn of the 20th century. The author was Charles W. Chestnut, like Scott, an author plagued by financial difficulties but with a strong literary reputation. The novel was The House Behind the Cedars. A historical novel set a couple of generations before it was written, The House Behind the Cedars uses many elements of Sir Walter Scott's medievalism, with its emphasis on identity and landscape and on how these are linked. It also, like Ivanhoe, explores the tensions inherent in hybrid identity within a stratified society. When Rena, one of the novel's mixed-race protagonists, chooses to pass as white, the name she chooses for herself is Rowena Warwick. No one, it is implied, could suspect a Rowena of being black. Not only in the figure of Rowena, Chestnut uses the house behind the cedars to write back against racist expectations about what kind of protagonists historical romances could have and what kind of narratives they could choose to highlight. The popularity of Ivanhoe was so iconic that I once read a story in a children's magazine in which the late 19th century American homestead setting was established in part by the fact that the bookish protagonist with whom I over-identified was reading Ivanhoe instead of doing her chores. In researching for this episode, I was unable to find the title of this story, but if you also subscribed to Cricket Magazine in the 1990s and know what I'm talking about, please let me know. Ivanhoe is also enshrined as a canonical text in Maud Hart Lovelace's charming Betsy Tacy series, written in the 1940s and set in the 1910s. The somewhat old-fashioned schoolteacher assigns Ivanhoe as summer reading. Bookish Betsy, with whom, yes, I over-identified, has already read it and is thrilled. She ends up summarizing it for her good-hearted and less bookish friends and bonding with her rival-slash-crush over her description of Rowena's beauty. It's adorable, but it also encapsulates how Ivanhoe's reputation was shifting towards the old-fashioned. 
1927, Virginia Woolf could write that no one reads Scott anymore. This shift is also epitomized in the early sitcom Leave it to Beaver. In this episode, Beaver is about 11 years old. His adored schoolteacher gives the class a list of books from which to choose for their final reading of the term. Together, his parents go over the list, which includes such infantile titles as Hoppy the Kangaroo. Mr. Cleaver wonders wistfully what happened to the quote real boys books he knew and loved growing up, and mentions iconic titles by American author James Fenimore Cooper and Jack London. Mrs. Cleaver says that she wouldn't know what happened to the real boys' books because the most exciting thing she was allowed to read was Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall. And this, while forgotten today, was a 1902 historical novel set in Elizabethan England. So even before we get into the Ivanhoe plot of the episode, we have some strongly gendered ideas of adventure, romance, and historical fiction. Ivanhoe is eventually selected by Beaver's dad because it's more manly than the assigned children's books. Perhaps more than incidentally, though, Ward has a less-than-accurate idea of what the novel is actually about. When Beaver asks what's an Ivanhoe, Ward enthusiastically responds that he was a knight, and that knights, as featured in the book, fought to defend their code of honor and rode all over the countryside avenging wrongs and protecting the weak. Beaver's older brother pipes up to say that in between times, according to his history teacher, the knights ate like pigs. This earns a canned laugh and functions as an admirable illustration of how the tensions and ambiguities of Ivanhoe and the imagined Middle Ages become simplified in the popular imagination. Predictably, the beaver becomes caught up in Ivanhoe to the point of insomnia, fighting duels with his best friend in the backyard and engaging in a fight for the defense of womanhood. After some misunderstandings, his conduct is hailed as gallant and chivalrous. He also gets beaten up by a larger boy, which is more accurate to what actually happens to Ivanhoe than the rest of the show is. While Beaver claims that Ivanhoe spent all his time saving girls and rescuing ladies, Ivanhoe in fact does not do that. He does turn up to fight to the death in a trial by ordeal on Rebecca's behalf, it's true. But this does not happen until the end of the book, for one thing, and for another, he ends up not having to fight, which is a good thing as he's still convalescent. But by 1960, the narrative of Ivanhoe mattered less than a simplified version of its Middle Ages, and the compatibility of that Middle Ages with an idealized version of white American suburbia and its gender roles. Beaver eventually concludes that the only way to have fun in the olden days is to read about it. Ivanhoe's popularity and iconic status was of course dependent in no small way on the ways in which the novel was imagined and reimagined, reenacted and reused. What makes the novel still so interesting, to my mind, is the ways in which it resists reductive attempts and subverts and questions the chivalric values it seeks to emblematize. Wilfred of Ivanhoe, unlike Robert Taylor on the movie poster accompanying the 1952 film and this episode, does not conquer a castle under siege. He gets carried out of a castle under siege, flung protesting over the shoulder of Richard the Lionheart. And some of the book's most interesting characters are not its most successful ones. This has fueled many adaptations from 1820 onwards. In 1820, George Soane wrote a serious play called The Hebrew, focusing on the figure of Isaac of York. Multiple opera composers decided, too, that Rebecca deserved more time at center stage. The 1982 and 1997 adaptations for the small screen also center characters whose identities are marginalized, 
1982 film opens on Isaac of York, played by none other than James Mason, and it is his journey that provides a through-line for the film. The 1997 miniseries depicts both Rowena and Rebecca as women whose intelligence is considerable and whose agency is constrained. Though, for that matter, does Sir Walter Scott, but the miniseries focuses on them to a greater degree. The miniseries also takes time to explore the traumatic effects of war on both Ivanhoe and Bois Gilbert, as well as the dangers of religious intolerance and hypocrisy. Both of these, of course, are of conspicuous relevance in the historical moment of the late 20th century, illustrating the fact that, to quote Umberto Eco again, modern ages have revisited the Middle Ages from the moment when, according to historical handbooks, they came to an end. Scott's own works, Anne Rigney has argued, were attempting something more challenging and more complicated, and I would argue more noble, than a reification of the olden days. Even as Scott romanticized the medieval past in Ivanhoe, he was also attempting to articulate a workable relationship between the legacy of the past and the potential for societies to become different. In many ways, historians are often doing similar work. And it is not just 19th century historians like Carlyle and Macaulay who were inspired by Scott. The noted medievalist Jacques Le Goff is also on record as having loved the novel as a boy. That Ivanhoe still has so much to say speaks, I think, to the complexities of the text. And it is this complexity, nuance, and ambivalence, even in its self-contradictions, that continue to make Ivanhoe and its legacies so interesting. Until next time, this is Footnoting History. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>